twice and she married twice. So she's faithless. Well, she's smart. Now that's pretty cool. Let's open up in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. We thank you for your word. Pray that you help us to glorify you in all that we say and do here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my mom was smart. At least she went from Weber to Wright, so she didn't actually have to change her initials. So, you know, maybe Megan can just find somebody with the last name. That's good. That's what we know. All right. We're in the Renaissance. And as we continue talking about this, things are continuing to wobble out of control. I know this is part three wobbling out of control, but it just keeps wobbling worse and worse and worse, which is why I'm labeling this section this. It keeps getting wackier and wackier. So today, wackier and wackier. As I said uh, a little bit ago, and as I said when we first started talking about the Renaissance, um, it starts becoming about city-states and even more so families. There's, a, there's like three or four family names that just keep coming up over and over again in the Renaissance as changing everything. And so the first family name, I want to talk about Henry V. You, you, ever, ever read the Shakespeare play or seen the Shakespeare play Henry V? Okay, that's like, that's like one of my favorite, if not my favorite, Shakespeare play is Henry V. But he fought the Battle of Agincourt in 1415. Now, if you remember uh, from last week, Henry's father, Henry IV, had been a really big supporter of the Archbishop of Canterbury and his campaign against the Lollards and other proto-reformers. It's like, we're going to get rid of all these people, we're going to cleanse the church. Henry V really bugged his dad when he was younger, because he actually had friends that were Lollards. He hung out with the Lollards. And I want you to think about this for a second. How huge is this? The guy who will be the next king of England is hanging out with reformers. People who think that the common man should have the Bible. People who think that, I don't know, maybe, maybe everybody should be sharing the gospel. Maybe it's not just everybody should be loving Jesus and making sure the church keeps growing sharing the gospel. The new king of England hang out with people who say, let's have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you realize how huge that would be to people? I mean, for the people who were, say, Lollards, for the people who were like you and me, we'd be sitting there going, ah, cross your fingers, yes, 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 right? And the people who hate the Lollards and who want to get rid of them, and like the Archbishop are saying, can we burn all these people? What would it be that you're your Prince of Wales, the new king coming up, is hanging out with these people and going, yeah, these are my buddies. Seriously, I mean, what would you think? If you're the guy on the street. How big would this be? Barack Obama, Barack Obama or, or even, maybe even um, on, the other, on the other side of it, a bigger, more intense version of some of the conversations that went around when George W. Bush became president. People were like, finally, we got a practicing Christian, somebody who's overt in his faith, somebody who, who prays and, and hangs out with pastors before he's apparently caught in sin. Because we got a lot of that. We had a lot of presidents who go, well, I was caught in sin, so I'm going to call Billy Graham and say, uh, we've never chatted, but would you come and pray with me? But it's kind of nice that we would have a, a, a president who goes, I was talking to Billy Graham before I was caught in any sin. Now, whether you personally like George Lee Bush or not. That was kind of the discussion that was going on. Yeah. And Kennedy being the first Catholic. Kennedy being the first Catholic. So this is the opposite version of that, where you sit yeah. there and you go, all the Catholics go, yes, 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 and all the Protestants go, no, he's going to answer to the Pope, and everything's going to be different, and everything's going to be horrible. So that's what's going on with Henry. Now what's interesting is, 
Shakespeare is writing his play post-Reformation. So how do you display this? Do you sit there and you say, he's the hero because he was hanging out with the good guys? But the whole point of, Henry, uh, of Shakespeare's play is that he was one way when he was younger, and hang out with people of low reputation, and then different when he was older. So Shakespeare said, I'm going to have him hang out with thieves and ruffians and people like that. He's hanging out bars with people of low reputation, so that when he becomes king, we can see how he blossoms. You go, there's a whole bunch of people that if they know anything about Henry, they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah I'm not with pickpockets and stuff. What? Oh, thank you so much. Um, but they'll say, oh, yeah, he hung out with pickpockets and stuff. And you go, no, he hung out with people like us. That's why he had problems. All right. As soon as he became king, Henry says, you know what? I'm going to take this seriously. I'm going to support the archbishop. I'm going to do all the things that a good king is supposed to do. And so a lot of, like, the Lollard sat there and said, well, we thought he was going to be our guy. He's so not our guy. This isn't cool. And other people just said, oh, he finally grew up. No, he's finally growing into his own as a king. So he was kind of famous for this king who was, like, youthfully exuberant when he was younger and then became mature and cool. In fact, that's the whole gist of the play is how he matured with that. But I think it's kind of interesting when you realize the background of what that actually meant. Anyway, 1415, guy sails to France to personally lead the fighting there. Because if you remember, only about 111 years into the 116-year war which everybody just called the Hundred Years' War because it's easier than 116 years. It doesn't trip off the tongue quite as easily. He's saying, okay, I've got a better claim to the French throne than the French king, Charles VI, does. Because if you remember a little while back when we talked about this, both English king Edward II, French king Philip VI, both of them said, We're, we should be the next guy. After, after they went through a succession of French kings, you go, is it the nearest... Is it like the nearest blood relative, or is it technically the next person in line? Who do you go with? And both of them said, well, me, me, me. You know, so. so for the last 111 years, Britain and France have been going back and forth as to who gets to rule France. Okay. Henry starts taking towns after town after town. Charles says, yeah. all right, Philip's problem, when this all started, Philip's problem is he just kind of threw together a whole army and flung out the British and lost, seriously. That's why we lost Cressy and all of Calais. That's why there are these red sections in, in, in blue France, is because these, these British came down here and did this, and Philip jumped into fighting them. I'm not doing that. I'm going to take my time. I'm just going to build up my forces. I'm going to make sure we're well, well stocked, well armored, well uh, uh, material, right? Let Henry go and take as many towns as he wants. Can he hold them? If he wants to take 100 towns, fine. If we beat him decisively, we win. So I'm going to build up, build up, build up. Anybody know what the rope-a-dope was? Anybody ever hear that expression in, in boxing? What is a rope-a-dope? Well, Ali uh, Frazier. Right, he, uh, Ali or Foreman, I'm sorry. would just protect himself and let let the other boxer wear himself out punching and punching and punching and then towards the end coming Exactly, because Foreman was, was more powerful than he was. He's like, I know he is. He's, just, he's a pile driver. But he's a big guy who's not in as good a shape. So if I can just go like this, if I can just protect myself and just pound, 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 
pound. After a while, he's got big spaghetti arms that he's hitting me with. And the moment I realized that he has lost it, the moment I realized that, yes, he's hit me 400 times and not done a lot of damage, but he's getting exhausted, I'm just going to come in and take him apart. That's what, that's what Charles is thinking. Let him exhaust himself. Then I'll take him apart. Okay? Rocky did the same thing. Rocky did do the same thing, yeah. Except he didn't put his gloves up. He used his face. Because <laughs> he's not human. He's, he's iron. You know, I remember the movies. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> All right. October 25th. So it's like this time of year. Okay. October 25th, Henry's tired, hungry 6,000 men with 1,000 dismounted knights. So they're all walking around dressed in burlap. All wet and cold and tired and hungry and I've been fighting for months and I'm kind of sick of it. These guys met Charles's 30 to 36,000 men with 10,000 knights, mounted knights. He's like, he's got six times as many men, ten times as many knights, and they're all fresh. We're going to get pounded on. The men at this field outside of Agincourt, so right on the edge of British territory, French territory, and he's been, he's been all over France taking things, but he's, he's trying to make his way to safe haven for the winter. He's like, I just got to find a place where I can hang. So I'm going to go back to, to English territory, see if we can hold on, and then hit all this again in the spring. Because my men are sick, we're exhausted. So what's going to happen when exhausted guys meet ten times as many guys? Pardon me? Squish. squish. Much less squish. The, speaking of squish... The British had this high hill, but the whole ground is just muddy. It had rained all night before, so everything is just sopping muddy. I mean, like, the actual field of Agincourt, it was, it was like almost knee-deep at points of mud. And I, I remember a football game that we played against East Peoria one time that was like that. And it was, I mean, I was out there for two hours in this horrible mud, and it was over your ankles in the, in the center of the field. I remember thinking, this is like the worst moment of my life. This is just horrible. To have your life depend on spending all day fighting in that gunk? That wouldn't be any fun. But it actually worked for the British. Because they had the hill and the French had the mud. And the French had the heavy war horses that got bogged down in the mud. And the French had heavy armor that got bogged down in the mud. And so the fact, and in fact I even was, was seeing something about this a while back, the fact that the British are even down to just wearing their leather boots you know, so I don't even have my, my, my metal you know, uh, armor on anymore. You're right. The leather boots just goes out of the mud. But if you get this, this smooth armor on, you're like stuck. You can't even move in this kind of mud. And so you say, this actually worked. Because now the French are just sitting there getting shot with arrows after arrows after arrows. They're sitting back. They can't even move in this stuff. It's a slaughterhouse. By the end of the day, the mud was red. It wasn't just water that was with the, the dirt. It's, it was red because the mud was being made out of blood. The British won the day, by the end of the day. The French lost seven to 10,000 men. The British lost 112. One of the hugest, most lopsided victories in all history. It was phenomenal crazy day. So, Charles, who already had some emotional problems, Charles every once in a while would, would believe he was actually made out of glass. 
And so they would have to just leave him sitting on the throne wrapped in, in, in blankets and things so that he wouldn't break. This would not have been a good thing for him to have found out about. Charles gave his daughter Catherine in marriage to Henry, and England took over France. Huge. Can't possibly talk about how huge Agincourt is and overestimate it. In fact, the Emperor Zygmunt, who we've heard about, right? Mm -hmm. Zygmunt comes to Henry and he says, you know what, we're buddies. You're obviously an up-and-coming guy. You're in your early 30s, and you just conquered France and stuff. Yeah, you now have that whole red section. I have that yellow section of the map that we talked about, you know, the, the Holy Roman Empire. You have this whole big red swath and it keeps getting bigger. Let's be buddies. Henry says, I will make you a member of the uh, Order of the Garter, which is Britain's most important, most prestigious military honor. And Zygmunt says, I'll make you a knight in the Order of the Dragon. Remember when we've been talking about that? So this is this Order of the Dragon all over the place. Really important in, in, uh, in Renaissance Europe. Henry is going to make a difference in the world. And then he died. Some sort of dysentery. We don't know. But he died rather unpleasantly at a very young age. As a result of that, his son, Henry VI, becomes this child king. And his kingdom is run by regents because he's too young, and the regents immediately lose friends. So they have less than they had at the beginning of the Hundred Years' War. Henry took over all of France, and then they lost all of it. The Aquitaine, Cressy, Calais, the whole schmear, it's gone now. End of the Hundred Years' War, right? Now, depending on how you feel about it, and you might be going, no, so hard. No, he was a cool guy. No. In the end of the Hundred Years' War, this thing decimated. No, decimated means one in ten. This thing, I don't know, is there a word for a third of your population gets killed over the span of this time? This killed a third of the population of England and France on top of the plague that's going on. So, this is huge. I'm kind of glad it's over. But it doesn't mean it's over in terms of wars for England. Because England sits and goes, well, we spend a lot of time fighting. We're kind of in the zone. And so they have their own civil war. If we back up, remember I was talking about the Plantagenet family, this family that Henry IV had come out of. The Plantagenet family has been controlling England for a couple of centuries. But with Henry IV, he was part of the House of Lancaster, which is one part of the Plantagenet family. And they said, you know, we're, we're, we're proud of being Welsh. We take as our symbol the, the red dragon of Wales. That's the flag of Wales. You know, we're, we're, we're all about the red. There's another house in the Plantagenet family called the House of York. And they liken themselves to a big wild white boar, which is about the toughest thing going in England at that time. Uh, you know, it's a thing wild boars can be really big, and they kill people. In fact, um... The story of Adonis, a uh, classic mythology tale. The guy died on a boar hunt. He went on a boar hunt and the boar killed him. He's like, boar's big, nasty tusks to take you out. Okay. The first Duke of York, a guy named Edmund, took as his own personal symbol a white rose. Okay? What? It's a, it's a rose. It's a rose. Uh, it's just that the rose looks... <laughs> Do not judge the entire age. No, but it, but it, it was a symbol of moral purity, of, of um, 
having a good walk with the Lord, what have you. A Lancastrian leader, years later, a guy named Henry Tudor, who eventually became Henry VII, King of England, took as his symbol a red rose. So you have the House of York with the white rose, the House of Lancaster with the red rose. So if you were going to label a simple, easy way of referring to this particular civil war, how might you describe it? The War of the Roses. And this, it, well, yeah. If you've ever heard of the War of the Roses, this is what this is. It's a civil war between the two houses of the Plantagenet family. When Tudors came into power, when Henry came into power, they combined the two roses, and that's referred to as the Tudor Rose, that has both white and red in it. Anyway, so England is fighting in and amongst itself, but that's not the only families that are going down here in the Renaissance. Like I said, there's like three or four families that you're just going to keep hearing their names over and over again. Plantagenet, York, Lancaster, Tudor. Those are all ones you're going to hear uh, in, in England. In fact, I think there's like an HBO series called The Tudors, which is basically just a sleazy soap opera. And what little I've seen in terms of like little snippets and previews and things, I don't know that it's historically accurate, like at all, but the fact that it's a sleazy soap opera is crazy historical accurate. Everybody's angry, you go, well, everybody's killing each other horribly and sleeping with each other. I'm like, yeah, no, that part is right. I'm not sure if they got the right people sleeping with the right people or killing the right people at the right time. But no, that's basically what the tutors did. You know, that's, that's about right. But the Plantagenets aren't the only ones going. So we've also got some other ones. For instance, we've already talked about the House of Medici, haven't we? Back when that peace and pope, John the 23rd, we used to think, you go, well, he's kind of a write-off. You know, that was not a great guy to have in power. When he came in, that Tuscan Medici family um, were the papal bankers. They got crazy rich being the papal bankers. They controlled all the flow of everything. Cosimo de' Medici took over the bank in 1434, and he excelled at this. He excelled at this so much that they basically took over the city-state of Florence. Not officially, but basically. I mean, they were so rich, they were telling everybody, including the rulers, what to do. You didn't mess with the Medicis. If they said, we think there should be a stoplight at this intersection, you don't go, well, actually, I don't think it, I don't think it really needs a stoplight. Do you realize how much of the... No, I don't think you understood. Cosmo said that there should be a stoplight at this intersection. So there is. Because his house, his, there should be a stoplight at his driveway. We don't do stoplights at the driveway. Cosmo said we do. Okay, let's put a stoplight at the end of his driveway. I said now we do. Now we do, yeah. So they basically controlled Florence. In fact, their wealth and from Florence is so widespread that their unit of monetary usage in Florence, the Florin, became the common unit for most of Europe. Everybody was using Florence. But, but it's just coming out of Florence. Uh-huh. Everybody uses Florence, because that is what's coming out of Florence. There's a reason why the Dutch, the abbreviation for the Dutch Gilder is a stylized F, or even an FL. FL, fl for Gilder, right? It's fl for Florin, right? Special bonus points. Anybody remember the names of the two competing kingdoms in Princess Bride? Oh! Florin <laughs> and Gilder. <laughs> now you know why! <laughs> they pick names and you go, no, no, no city-state, no kingdom was ever called Florin, none was ever called Gilder, and yet something in the back of most of our minds go, 
Those two names sound vaguely familiar. Yeah, those two names work to. They sound like real names because they are units of currency. Was that movie based on that um, century, that time frame? Or, Ish. Um, Ish. Okay, I was just the movie is based on a book that's much better than the movie. And I love the movie. I thought the movie was based great. On a book that Okay, no, 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 no. It totally exists. You can't find the original book. All you can find is, okay, The Princess Bride was written by S. Morgan. Don't even get me going on this. It's written by S. Morgenstern. And it's this incredible book, except that William Goldman remembered having heard it when he was a kid, when he was sick, and his grandfather would read it to him. And then he finally found a copy of the book, and he realized it's crazy boring. It's got whole, you know, 20 pages of wedding decorations and things. And so he realized that what had actually happened is his grandfather had read him the good parts version. That he'd read only the really interesting bits. And so William Goldman actually published the good parts version of S. Morgenstern's The Princess Bride. And that's the only version that you can find out in the, in the, in the, in the bookstores. But, you know, it totally exists. And it wasn't because his daughter said she wanted to write a book about a princess. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's S. Morgenstern. <laughs> now, the reason I even go into that much is... Megan read the book and loved it, and when I explained to her that it was a joke, there's no S. Morgenstern, she's like, no! Somehow she read the whole book without getting the central joke that he's just writing the best good parts version of a fake book. Oh, anyway. That's what you get from me. Yeah. All right, so the Medici, because this is a class not about the Princess Bride, but about this. I love that book. Okay, the Medici. Bankrupted the Duchy of Tuscany so they could do the exact same thing to all of Tuscany, that whole region that they did with the city state of Florence. They just keep taking whole chunks and tacitly running them because they have the money to run things into the ground and to make sure that their will is what gets done. You don't mess with the Medici, these guys just are in charge of everything. For the next several centuries, they keep pulling all the strings behind the scenes, they keep manipulating kings and cardinals and popes and things in ways that you just do not mess with. You just don't cross these guys. Now, what's interesting is, I started this whole section on, on uh, the Renaissance saying that instead of fighting with one another, like with swords and pointy things, a lot of these city-states had enough wealth and had enough stability that their competition became more economic, became more social. We make more money than you do. It actually helps us that it actually helps us that you make textiles, um, you, or that you do cloth. You do good cloth. You make the best cloth, but we make dye. Nobody wants to buy your beautiful white cloth, and only that. They want purple cloth and red cloth and things. So we want you to have really good, really expensive cloth, so that we can put our dye in it and then sell it as really crazy expensive cloth. So we want you to do well, we just want to do better than you. But we want to keep you alive, and we want you keep, to keep you making cloth. You understand how that goes? That's capitalism. This is kind of where our modern understanding of this goes. McDonald's doesn't want Burger King and Hardee's and Wendy's to go out of business. Because then, that whole America's a burger place falls apart. They want it to be a burger culture. They just want to be the one that most people go to. So they want competition, they just always want to be on the head of it. Same thing with these guys. They want competition. They just want to be at the head of it. And so as part of that competition, and 
because they're wealthy and wealthy people get to do pretty much whatever they want. They became patrons of the arts and sciences and things. They're like, I don't necessarily always just want uh, the biggest guns. I also want the nicest house. I want the best looking art. I want the best looking tomb. I want fill in the blank. So for instance, Lorenzo de Medici was the patron for Michelangelo. Because he's like, oh, you're a great sculptor, and I want a great sculptor. I want sculptures all over Florence that look like me, or look like my family, or say what I like. That's what I want. He's also the patron of Leonardo da Vinci, saying, hey, you're an inventor and an architect and things. Um, Leonardo da Vinci is the guy who was essentially the architect for Venice. Once they realized that Venice is slowly sinking into the sea, you know, that whole, oh, it's so pretty, their streets are wet. You know, um, everything's wet. Everything's just sinking. How do we make it not sink? Who would you even talk to to make a whole city not slide into the ocean? <laughs> Leonardo. So Leonardo had to come up with ways to make sure that the city didn't slide into the ocean. Anybody know, by the way, some of the things he did? Ways thinking big pillars sunk deep in that hold it up, but also big old balloons in the basement. I saw that on one of the James, James Bond. Bond. <laughs> oh, that's okay, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, is that because that's, because that's all the way it worked, sort of. Yeah, I mean, okay, there's what? so all sorts of different things that he did to create stability, whether it's strengthening the, the foundations with the pillars or or lightening the. The, you know, creating more buoyancy in the buildings with, with things like these giant balloons. All sorts of very, very brilliant ways of making sure that this stuff stuck together. Anyway, um, go ahead. While we were in Italy visiting all the cathedrals, mm -hmm. we found out that was a competition also because it was all the textile people who built this cathedral versus the other. Mm -hmm. uh, and every, and the carpenters built this one and everybody had their own. For their, uh, for their union, yep. whatever. The guild. I mean, at the time, yeah. guilds were the big thing. So. Yeah, so every guild had their own cathedral. They all tried to outdo each other. Yep. If you remember, um, Dante was the head of a guild, which is why he had such political power uh, when, when he was around. Um, Notre Dame of Strasbourg, I think, uh, was built in the mid-15th century and was the tallest building in the world until the mid 19th century. So, I mean, it, it, because they were always trying to outdo one another. You know, ours is bigger, ours is bigger, well, ours is bigger. Oh, man, ours is prettier. Good. We went for bigger. Yeah, well, you're foolish. We went for prettier. <laughs> oh, man. Ah. Giovanni uh, de Lorenzo de Medici became Pope Leo X, uh, who bankrupted the church. Because he's like, well, we have the papacy, let's enjoy it. He was followed around by a circus everywhere he went. Wacky fun, these Medicis. But they're not the only important family. There's also the Borgias. Has anybody ever heard of the Borgias? Okay, technically they're the Borjas. Uh, they came from Spain, from the region of Aragon. And they're, and they're named after the fiefdom of Borja. But they're so important in Italy. They're so renowned in Italy that everybody just calls them the Borgias because that's, that's the Italian variant of their name. But the Borgias, like the Medici, are crazy wealthy and involve themselves with all sorts of different things, but these guys wanted to be more directly in control. I mean, the Medici are like, we're pulling the strings from behind. Yeah, we tossed in a pope, but we're basically pulling the strings from behind. The Borgias are like, we want to get in the thick of it. We, and, and they're, 
where the Medici are, I don't know, I mean, think of the classic rich family in town that tries to dominate everybody else. That's the Medici. The Borgias are more like the mob. I mean, they're, like, they're perfectly fine with doing things tremendously underhandedly, tremendously icky at points. For instance, family line included a couple of popes, several different cardinals. Um, Alphonse de Borja became Pope Calixtus III. We'll talk about him. He's the guy that excommunicates Holly's Comet in 1453, because that's what popes do. Well, that's really appropriate. I think so, because, well, if you ask me, the Comet had it coming. <laughs> we'll talk about why. More importantly, you have Rodrigo de Borja, who becomes Pope Alexander VI, who may be one of the slimiest human beings who ever lived. Kind of can't help but hate this guy. His own master of ceremonies once wrote, there is no longer any crime or shameful act that does not take place in public in Rome and in the house of the pontiff. This is about as bad as it gets. If you've been feeling like the papacy has been wobbling out of control, that these guys are just getting worse and worse and worse, no, you haven't seen nothing until you get to Rodrigo. This guy takes it to a whole new level. How many popes are there now at that point? Just no, there's just one now. Okay. Just, just one? Yeah. Like, one really bad one. Why would, you, why would you even ask? There's just one pope. There's, there's only ever been one pope. One real pope. One real pope. So it depends on yeah. which one thinks he's real. Exactly, exactly. Rodrigo has a son named Cesar, or Cesare, if you go with the Italian version. Cesare Borgia. There's a daughter named Lucretia Borgia, and they're often guests and participants in the orgies that Rodrigo has in the Vatican. Um, there's one in particular that I can't... It's, 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 um, but these are creepy people. They're very creepy people. They're famous for their various incestuous relationships, because Lucretia and Cesare seem to have been sleeping with each other, and Lucretia and Rodrigo seem to have been sleeping with each other, and... Cesare might have been doing things with Rodrigo. It just it just gets weird and really creepy. They also tended to poison everybody they didn't like. In fact, they became famous for poisoning. If you've heard anything about the Borgias ever, it's either because they're sleazy, or more likely, it's because they became like the kings and queens of poisoning people. They're all about, I'm going to be pretty much as slimy as I can be, out in your face, and there's just not a heck of a lot you can do about it because I'm that rich. I'm that powerful. Ha. Not a fun family. Again, though, they're competing with other rich families. And so, where the Medici are like, we're the old blood family, we've got all the money, and so we always have all the best stuff. The nouveau riche, Borjas, go, we gotta get stuff too! Hey, 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 show them the thing, show them the thing! You know, and trot out the, look, I got a solid gold Cadillac. I mean, so heavy you can't drive it, but I mean, who would want to anyway? I mean, look at that thing, it's wonderful. In fact, uh, yeah, we have sex on the hood of that thing every day. It's great. Come look at my Cadillac. You go, you are like one of the most offensive human beings I've ever run into, and you're just really rich, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, I snort cocaine off the steering wheel. You know, it's like, I don't like you people at all. Borges, Borges. But they also become patrons of Leonardo da Vinci. Cesar, Cesare. He hires Leonardo primarily to design weapons for him. I don't know if you realize it, but one of the things, one of the ways that Leonardo made the most money during his lifetime was designing armaments. In part for the Borgias, yes. Like Leonardo designed the tank, Leonardo designed the machine gun, Leonardo designed all these different things, yeah. 
in one of the videos we went through, uh -huh. I had the display of all of Leonardo's books. Yes, and he was, he was famous for that. I mean, he, it's not the way he wanted to be remembered. We'll talk about Leonardo when he comes up. But yeah, I mean, yeah, he was, this is what he was famous for. But you got all these these families competing with one another. Not so much. <laughs> but then again, it's intense rivalry. But just like you said, there you go, well, how do the different crime families get along in New York? And you go, not well, but they can't afford to be shooting each other in the streets. Because once you start that, you never stop that. I remember uh, playing a game with my buddies in, in high school, and, and uh, one of the guys that we were with was a guy that I just did, I chafed with all the time. We did not get along at all. And we realized we made the best partners ever. Because neither one of us would ever stab each other in the back because we're like, once that starts, it's going to go bad places really fast. So, I mean, we could totally trust each other because we didn't like each other, like, at all. It made for just splendid partners with this. Pardon me? Um, well, I didn't necessarily want to be partners with him. It just ended up that way, but we found out, once we did that, we were like, we found out relatively quickly that in a game where you can stab each other in the back, and we're like, we're not going to do that because we knew it would be a bloodbath. So we're like, okay, Andy's never going to stab me in the back, and he knows I'm never going to stab him in the back. We have this tremendous block. We are twice as strong as anybody else here. Oh, another family that's worth commenting on is the House of Habsburg. Now, these guys came from the Black Forest in southern Germany. But you got to remember, that's really close to the city-states in northern Italy, isn't it? you got to remember, there is no Germany yet. There's not even really a national Italy. They'll talk about being king of Italy, but even that is more this section. There's no sense of Italy as a place or Germany as a place. So all that is just one section of southern Germany and northern Italy. You know, it's all one smushy bit, right? So I could theoretically, instead of calling them the Habsburgs, I could call them the House of Asburgo, as they do in Italy today. Because they're just about as Italian as they were German. Just like the other ones are just about as German as they are Italian. Remember when we talked about the, the rivalry between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines? The Welfs and the Weiblingens? Which is it? Is it the Italian Guelphs, Guelphi and Ghibelline? The Italians, or is it the Welps and the Weiblingens, the Germans? You go, yes. It's, you could you could call them either way. This kind of depends on how far north you are when you're talking about it. These are the people that led to the family rivalry in Romeo and Juliet. We had a full discussion about that. So remember, it's all kind of smushed together. The Habsburgs took an even more direct connection point in in history. They're like, we're 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 not just going to be pulling the the economic strings. We're not just going to be uh, playing with and dabbling with politics or getting some people to be popes. We want to be kings. There have been Habsburgs who have been elected kings of that peninsula, whether that means anything or not, uh, since Rudolf back in 1273. We have, just had, we have been important people. And the king of Italy is the guy who theoretically is supposed to become the next emperor. So 1440, Friedrich III becomes emperor, right? And Habsburg is sitting on the imperial throne until 1740. Think about that for a second. I mean, the world was rocked in 1740 when a completely different German becomes the emperor. He's, oh, he's from a completely different German family. But up until that point, 
You have 300 straight years of one family controlling the entire Holy Roman Empire. You, it's hard to overestimate what, what kind of power the Habsburgs had at their height of power and their height of influence. So you're going to keep hearing a lot of these names. The Plantagenet, Henry V, fights the Battle of Agincourt. The same year that he does that, Henrique de Alves fought the Battle of Ceuta. And I talked about this last time at the very end. But Henrique de Alves, which is Portuguese for Henry the Navigator, because he's famous for his military incursions via water and, and his expeditions and things. He's this Duke of Portugal who encouraged King Jao I. Anytime you see something like this, you go, ha ha, Portuguese. Does that look like Spanish? No. Who puts a tilde over an A? No, Portuguese. If it looks weird like that, Portuguese. Way too many stinking letters that don't look like they belong in a, in a word, lots of L's and W's and Y's, Welsh. Lots of L's and X's and EU's and S's that don't that nobody pronounces, French. Freaky little tildes over the A's and stuff, Portuguese. Like 17 A's in a row, Dutch. So every time you see something like that, get a feel for these things. That's right. There you go. It's like it's like people it's like it's like the Dutch get their record needle stuck, you know, it's like you know, and, you know, they get kind of stuck doing things. Anyway, all right, so he convinces King Zhao I, which is King John I of Portugal, to attack North Africa down here. And he's like, now we're going to take some land. Not only, as we talked about last time, did this start 500 years of Portuguese expansion. They went all over the world. But it also gave them this crucial foothold at the tip of Africa. This, is, this becomes very, very important. The first... European holding in Africa. Now, if you know anything about like, the 19th century, that became all the rage. Just to have, you know, Belgium has European holdings in Africa. France and England and everybody wants a little chunk of Africa. Well, Portuguese are the first ones to do it. Spain hates that. I mean, look at that. That is not contiguous to Portugal. It's closer to, like, Castilla here or to Granada. So for Portugal to own this southern part, just south of Gibraltar. Spain is not happy with that. But it also gave Portugal a slave trade that nobody had ever had before like that. When the black Muslim slavers sold black slaves to the white Portuguese, think about what that did. For the first time in history, slavery becomes based on the color of your skin. Up until this point, Germans enslaved Germans. Russians enslaved Russians. Uh, Egyptians enslaved Hebrews, because by golly, we beat them. Uh, you know, whatever. But for you to say, I get to own somebody because they're not from here, because they have, they're from a different race, because of the color of their skin, that's new. You can thank the Portuguese for that. And so the Portuguese simply referred to them as blacks, negros, to which the European English eventually referred them as niggers which is a demeaning term, but it originally came just from a descriptive term. But by the time this word becomes in, po in power, it's, it, you can see them says, these are black, white slaves or things, it's, you are inherently a slave because of the color of your skin. You are a lesser human unless you are black. Fundamentally changes their understanding of race to the Portuguese. When, with all the controversy that goes on in this country and, you know, with the slavery stuff, do you, that was a, yeah, last week when you said that, that was the first time I ever heard that. Do people in the history, since they don't know their history, do they always just blame America that we're the first ones that did that? 
Well, America or, or white people or, um, or, or, and this is, this is the trickier bit, the institution of slavery itself. I'm not saying that slavery is okay. Right. I don't want to say that. But prior to the 15th century, it was different than what we think about it. Um, it, a lot of times it was more akin to indentured, slave, uh, indentured servitude. There were all sorts of rules and laws in ancient Rome and the Roman Republic about protecting slaves and things. When the Bible talks about slavery, it's a different kind of slavery. Because we don't know our history, when we think about slavery, everything we think of is post-15th century. It's, I am enslaved, which means I'm a lesser human being, and you think that because I'm of a different race and you know, It is bad. It is not the way that it usually was during history. Which is not to say that the Egyptians treated the Hebrews well, but it's just it's a different thing. And 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 because we don't know history, sometimes we we miss out on the on the context of some of those things. So like when the Bible or talks about treating your slaves well, people go, the Bible supports slavery. Everybody supported slavery at that particular time. It was a different kind of beast at the time. And the Bible saying, since you're doing this, do this this way. Um, 1418, Pope Martin V, we've seen this guy, he came up as a result of all that schisms you were talking about, called for an African crusade. Now that we've got a tip of Africa, now's the time to go in there. Christendom has a foothold. Let's go. Christendom, that starts being a word now. Christendom, the kingdom of Christ, you know, that has pointy swords and things and can go tell people what laws they should follow. Christendom. Christendom has a foothold. Let's go make it right. Now, it didn't hurt that that uh, Henrique gave him a bribe of 10 slaves himself. He said, you get 10 African slaves of your own. If you call for a crusade against Africa that gives me the right to go into Africa with the church's blessing and get more slaves. So the church officially gave Portugal the license to enslave any non-Christian whom they came across in Africa. Because we're, we've got a crusade in Africa. So anybody that you come across, knock yourself out. 1425, Martin issued a papal bull that threatened to excommunicate any Christian who bought or sold another Christian to or from a Muslim. Because it's okay to do it between Christians. I mean, if you're a Christian selling a Christian to a Christian or buying a Christian from a Christian, that's okay. But you can't buy or sell one with Muslims because that's demeaning, you know, Christ. But you can still sell Christians with Christians. But there, there, see, there are rules about how you're supposed to treat another Christian slave. You can do whatever you want to with heathen slaves. Who cares about heathens? Remember, Martin's the one who says, a, a promise made to a heretic like Huss? Who cares? He's a heretic. He's not a Christian. You made a promise that he'd have safe conduct? Well, who cares? Kill him. They're heathen. Who cares? Do whatever you want to. You want to beat your slaves? You want to rape your slaves? Go ahead. They're your slaves. Unless they're Christians. The rules about that. Why do you think he would make this rule? What this, this to our modern ears, this sounds weird. Why do you think he would make this rule? Because he wanted the Christians to make money down in Africa selling slave There you go. Absolutely. Why didn't he outlaw Christian against Christian slavery? Well, and, and that's a good point, is let's even give Lincoln the, the benefit of the doubt and extend that back to, to Martin as you go, 
x version of this edict is never going to be accepted. But x minus 5 might. Maybe that's what Martin is trying to do. Maybe he's, maybe he's trying to control his own slave trade. Maybe he's saying um, Christian against Christian is already, uh, is already uh, controlled, so let's do it this way. Who knows? Let's, let's get to that in a second. 1431, Martin calls for a new council in Basel, which is where? Actually, snowy bits. Switzerland, where it is now. It, it was, even back then, it's not considered Italian soil. It's, it's somewhere else. So this is Switzerland. He's bound to determine, he's like, I'm going to make sure everybody knows I'm in charge. I'm absolutely in charge. Council is not in charge. Because remember that conciliatory? That's not so well for the Pope's Oh, yeah. I am so in charge of the whole church, and everybody's going to know it. Anybody who jumps up and down going, I'm in charge, I'm in charge, I'm in charge, certainly must be, right? That's the way that works. So, 1438, Martin dies, and his successor, Eugene the Fourth. and if you sit there and go, <laughs> Pope Eugene, this is the last Pope Eugene, so. <laughs> Pope Eugene comes up and he says, I'm going to fill my papal treasury by taking back all of the bribes and gifts that Martin gave to all of his friends and family. Uh, because that's what you do when you're Pope. When you're Pope, you, you go, okay, I'm now Pope, therefore all my friends get money, they get land, they get stuff, uh, they get good jobs. That's what Popes get to do, right? Just like governors. Just like governors. <laughs> governors, like governors would never do that. Stop! Um, so he says, I'm going to take back all this stuff, which torques off everybody. I mean, his cardinals, all of northern Italy, everybody gets upset with him for doing this. So what do you do? You've been censured as the Pope by the council. What do you do? I'm in charge. I'm going to start my own council. <laughs> Heck with your council. I'm starting a council in Ferrara, which is in Italy. Ha ha. And mine is about healing the Great Schism. Where'd that come from? Uh, these get fixed. If there's ever been a pretext for I'm starting up my own council, this is it. You know, we haven't dealt with this in 400 years. I'm fixing it. My council trumps your council. The Byzantine Emperor, John, sits there and goes, I am happy to do this. I am one tiny little besieged... Remember how it used to be that the, the Constantinople had this big, light blue section all throughout Anatolia? It's just one little city now, surrounded by green. Nothing but Turks all over the place. He's like, I got big, thick walls, and I'm imprisoned by them. They can't dislodge me, and I can't do a darn thing. So, yes, I want to be friends with Rome. Fine, let's make friends. That's great. Let's actually make a shaky agreement. Everybody's cool with this? That's great. All right, yeah, we're friends. And he goes back to Constantinople, and all the monks and churches back to Constantinople go, No. You just, no. Did you forget why we didn't like them? No. This is lame. Ferrara, oh, by the way, dissolved the Council of Basel. Because Ferrara's in charge, right? The Pope is in charge of Ferrara. Council of Basel, yeah. Eugene says, no, 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 got to be held on Italian lands. It only counts if it's on Italian, no foreign councils, no foreign lands, no. Council, you guys disband or I am removing you from your office. So what do they do? They disband, right? No, they deposed Eugene and they elect Felix V as Pope. Creating a new Western schism, so now there's two popes. Thank you very much, thank you for playing. I owe you a shiny nickel after class because at the time there's only one. You go, yeah, for about a minute and a half. You were down to one pope, and now you got two again. Two popes, thank you so much. So Eugene excommunicates all the cardinals. <laughs> who 
who decide they're not excommunicated. And it just gets ugly again. It takes the new emperor Friedrich, remember him? Friedrich comes in and goes, that's it. It's illegal for anybody to hold a church council in Basel. I'll just do it that way. Burgermeister, round up anybody who's counseling in Basel. Okay? This fixes things, right? So the next year they just moved to Lausanne. <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, okay, we won't meet in Basel then. That was simple. Except, really, by the time this is rolled around, by the time you get to the emperor telling you it's illegal for you to meet, you don't have a lot of steam anyway. You know, they're pretty much gone. And poor Felix was nothing. I mean, he didn't do hardly anything. Even the people that elected him went, kind of a puppet pope. Anyway, not really a pope. The council's kind of in charge of you, and he's like, I'm kind of a pope now. And they're like, yeah, yeah, sit in the quiet, sit in the corner quietly with a nice hat. But these guys don't really have any power. By the way, the same year, uh, Russia, the Russia's patriarchs uh, were disgusted with Constantinople. They're like, you guys sucked up to Rome. You gave away the family farm. You ignored all the reasons why we broke with Rome in the first place. We're sick of you. We're our own church. There have been two churches, right? There's been the Western Church under Rome and the Eastern Church under Constantinople. Russia goes, nope, we're our own thing. So the Metropolitan, which is the Russian version of a patriarch or a bishop, the Metropolitan named Jonah of Moscow says, there's a new Russian Orthodox Church. You ever heard of the Russian Orthodox Church? You can thank the, the doofuses at the Council of Ferrara who tried to do a bad job of healing the schism to create a third church. We're going to heal the schism. Really? You just caused another schism. Congratulations. And so they call Moscow a third Rome. Tretia Rim. A third Rome. There was Rome, and then the second Rome of Constantinople. Now there's a third Rome of Moscow. Three churches. Three churches go. Oh, oh, oh. 1444. That slave trade kicks in, officially. Enrique oversees the importation of slaves into Europe en masse. We're going to have a pipeline. In part because we've lost so many people with the plague, right? There's just not enough people to work everything in Europe. We've got to import people from a whole other continent. But also because we can keep them so cheap. We can buy people so cheap. The Muslims are basically giving them away over there on the coast. We're totally taking them. So it was most, I mean, it was also the African people decided that this was Way of making money too. Oh, yeah. So it wasn't like they were all being just dragged. Nope. They were actually buying. At slave markets, yep. It's not, like the, it's not like the Portuguese were going into the savannah or the jungles or whatever and grabbing people and taking back. They were going to the towns where the slave markets were and buying them slave markets. Um, thanks to Martin's edict, for those of us that were going, why would he do it that way? You're primarily having to buy your slaves from heathen lands, right? I mean, yeah, you can buy them in Europe, but there are a lot of rules that shackle you there. <laughs> no pun intended. Um, there are a lot of rules that shackle how you can treat a slave from Europe. But African slaves, you can do whatever you want. So now everybody wants to buy a heathen slave. And the only nation with a pipeline to the slaves of heathen Africa is Portugal. And Enrique sets up a 20% tax on every slave that anybody buys. So one-fifth of whatever you spend getting the slave, and everybody wants a slave. One-fifth of every purchase of slave goes to Portugal. Portugal gets crazy filthy rich. Crazy filthy rich. 1552, 10% of the population of Lisbon are slaves. Huge. Huge. In fact, a funky little teaching moment. 
if you want to keep that going, that people have to keep buying slaves from Africa, best thing you can do, the Portuguese realize, is to just have the men castrated. You know, just like you would with any animal, is so that you control the breeding of them. So they sent a lot of people to Egypt, because the Coptic uh, monks in Egypt were really good at castration. They had perfected this, because that's the best way of making sure that you don't fall victim to sexual temptation. So they're constantly, they're constantly castrating one another. I'm not going to go into the details of how they do it. It really sounds very unpleasant, though. Uh, most people survive it. The majority of people survive it. The monks made so much money castrating so many slaves that they became a powerhouse. Think about that. We're just making money off of every slave we castrate. We're making a lot of money, which means that God must be very proud of us. If you're making a lot of money, if your church is growing, you must be doing it right. God must be liking us, right? Yeah. Even if the slave sits there and goes, I don't want to get castrated, I'm only being sold because I'm a different color, and you go, no, 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 we're making a lot of money, so God must be blessing us. It's cool. 1452, Pope Nicholas V issues what's called the Dum Diversus, a papal bull that extended to the kings of Spain and Portugal, quote, full and free permission to invade, search out, capture, and subjugate the Saracens, that's the Muslims, and pagans, and any other unbelievers, enemies of the Christ, wherever they may be, as well as their kingdoms, duchies, counties, principalities, and other property, and to reduce their persons into perpetual servitude. Which means anybody you run across, in any capacity, you can enslave them, take their stuff, not only enslave them, but enslave them, their families, in perpetuity. So, I don't care if their great-great-grandchildren have been born in Portuguese soil for the last three generations, they're still your slaves. Because their great-great-grandparents were enslaved by you. Because the Pope said so, right? Technically, this is supporting the crusade in Africa, but really it's just saying, um, God is blessing the slave trade. Knock yourself out. And you'll notice it says, wherever, right? Does it say in Africa? It says, wherever. Which is why, when Portugal and Spain came to the New World, when they went to Asia, anywhere they went, the Pope says they can take anybody they want and enslave them if they don't already know Jesus. Now, here's the fun bit. Was Columbus, who in his journal constantly talking about the need to convert the heathen, and that that's part of why he was taking the voyage, is Columbus a rotten human being because he is extending the slave trade? Or is he an awesome human being because he's saying, make them Christians? What's the rule? You, you can't buy or sell Christians from a heathen. You can't be taking Christians like that from their homes. So is Columbus a rotten human being or an awesome human being? When I was a kid, he was great because he discovered America because apparently nobody was here yet. Um, <laughs> nowadays, he's evil. He might be complicated is what I'm getting at. Okay? That's his stated goal. Now, some people say, oh, no. I think he was really right in the journals going, someday people will read my captain's log and they will think, of, maybe, but probably not. Well, 1453, the next year, Constantinople falls to the, to the Turks. This is where we're going to pick it up next week. This is huge. This changes European history 
from now on, actually. But how would you describe this point in history where we're left at? What would you say? How would you describe how things are going on right now in, in European history, in the history of the church? Your lessons right now, what are doing to me, because I just keep thinking we're just so spiraled down the hill in this country. You know, I like to listen to one of the prophecy preaching and stuff. And there's that, you know, Tom and I kind of got in an argument, just the other, not an argument, but discussion about, I was like, oh man, we're just going to hell. It is, you know, about end times. And he's like, nothing's changed. Mm -hmm. And why didn't the end of the world happen with all these popes and different things? And I'm not, and I totally believe we're getting closer and closer because, of course, we are. But this is kind of opening up a little bit more to me with the history is like every every generation has always thought, you know, the Antichrist is there, but they don't even know about the Bible as much. Yep. But as people are reading the Bible and as they read about this stuff, they sit there and they go, the Pope is the beast. Rome is Rome in, in Revelation. Wait! Oh, I get this! I saw this! Especially with the Borgias, my goodness. Oh, yeah! And so, yeah, as <laughs> I said... worse than Nero. At the turn of the first millennium, you know, when it went from the first millennium to the second, there were people who went, that's it, we're toast. During the plague. I mean, realize at this yeah, point in history, you go, you get the plague and the and and uh, the Hundred Years' War and popes having orgies in the Vatican. People are like, I can't get worse than this. Um, for that matter, it always blows people away. No, no, I shouldn't say it that way. It often blows people away. People will talk about, you know, our America used to be such a land of, of morality and things, and, and nowadays it's just, I mean, look at the rampant prostitution, things like that. You, go, you do realize, a hundred years ago, almost exactly a hundred years ago, the law in New York City was that, and I've said this before, but the law in New York City was that every brothel had to make sure that a detective from the police force comes and talks to everybody who's working there under the age of 10 to make sure that they're there under their own volition. Nobody is forcing them to have sex with any old men against their will and make sure that that's all right. And if the kids say, yes, I'm an eight-year-old, but I want to be here, then that's okay. That's the law in New York City at the turn of the century. Yeah. And we sit there and go today, oh, well, it's so immoral today. Different immoral. But we're human, and we still remain human. We're always going to find ways to be horrible. You look at Victorian England, and they talk about Victorian values. That, I mean, everybody's very, very stuffed up. And go, yes, and then they all go down in the, in the lower city in the bowels at night and do horrible, horrible things. I believe that's the whole point of the book, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Can I dress in a nice suit and a top hat and be a nice guy during the day and just go be a monster at night where nobody knows it's me? That's Edwardian Victorian England in a nutshell. So, yeah, I mean, are we getting close to the end time? Absolutely. But what we're seeing here is that there's always going to be that human element. There's always going to be ways that we are just going to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, can't leave it that because otherwise people can hope. In the midst of that, even in the midst of there being laws, not only from the kings, but from the church that you can't read the Bible. Laws from the church that you can't teach your children to pray. Um, even in the midst of all that, we still have pockets of Christianity that say, no, 
You still have monks in Ireland who refuse to fall into that and say, we're doing our own thing. You still have the Lollards and the Hussites. You still have all these people who say, I will die to get the Bible into someone's hands. You have Tyndale coming up here soon who dies to get the Bible in English and, and, and to you. You've got um, uh, people who are willing to go to the stake on theological principles. They're like, they, their last words may very well be, this is the dumbest reason to kill anybody ever. But they're willing to go to their death to take a stance on whether or not it becomes the actual blood and body of Jesus Christ. At the time when it looks like, boy, it couldn't get much worse than this, you still have people who are saying, I take this very, very seriously. And true Christianity still holds on. That's something crucial. The whole point of Revelation, I was just telling somebody the other day, is not that everybody makes it out alive, but that the good guys do win. You might overcome by the blood of your martyrdom, but you're an overcomer. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much that you do show us that even in the midst of so much darkness, you bring your light. It's never extinguished. You said over and over again in your, in your words some derivation of the fact that the gates of hell will never triumph over your kingdom, over your church. Thank you, Lord. I pray, Lord, help us not, not to be so flabby just because we've got it so relatively easily. When you think about all the things going on to Christians all around the world, even today, we have it pretty good. I pray, Lord, help us to take advantage of our opportunity to be ambassadors, not of Christendom, but of the kingdom of Christ. In Jesus' name.